The sabers get louder in Korea today, Friday, March 29th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. North Korea threatens the U.S. with military action. But what's the message for China? Also, the dangers of telling an African warlord story through drawings. There is a, a fine but fuzzy line between reporting a story like this and being pornographers. And we are not pornographers. And later, a hunger strike at Guantanamo, but few news outlets are covering it. We've left Iraq. We're leaving Afghanistan. And there still are 166 captives at Guantanamo Bay. The story hasn't ended just because people would prefer not to hear about it. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's hard to know when to take North Korea seriously, but when the rattling sabers get louder, as they have in the past couple of days, it seems like a good time to pay attention to things on the Korean peninsula. North Korea says it's ready and willing to attack U.S. forces and the U.S. mainland. That's their reaction to U.S. stealth bomber practice runs over South Korea. But no one is saying conflict is imminent, and it seems the saber rattling may actually be directed not at the U.S., but at China. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing. Mary Kay, why is the smart money putting low odds on a resumption of the Korean War? Well, because Kim Jong-un, as far as anyone knows, is brash but not dumb. And North Korea really doesn't have the wherewithal to be able to sustain any kind of a war. Um, China has also put pressure on North Korea, saying, you're out of line, you're making things difficult for us. We give you most of your oil and quite a bit of your food. If you want to continue to have that, you need to act a little differently. And thus far, Kim Jong-un has been resisting doing things China's way. But uh, there's a bit of a standoff. And without support from China or Russia, it would be hard to know where North Korea would get the weapons, the arms, the ammunition to be able to sustain any kind of a war. I mean, you say Kim Jong-un, brash, but not dumb. But uh, a lot of people say he is a little unpredictable. Um, Let's hear a bit of what a South Korean professor by the name of Kim Hyung-kyu had to say at a press conference about uh, Kim Jong-un this morning. Kim Jong-un is dangerous. He's young, inexperienced, and bold, and uh, he's uh, eager for showing their people how great, how excellent he is. Kim Jong-un is bored, so short of war, how far might he go to relieve his boredom? Well, so this is a tried and tested method that North Korea has had for a while. Uh, Kim Jong-un's dad, Kim Jong-il, did this too. You play brinksmanship, you play chicken, you say, I'm a very, very dangerous guy. This is a very volatile country. You know, we could make life difficult for you at any time, so give us aid. And it's worked in the past. Uh, In recent years, South Korea and the U.S. have said, yeah, actually, we're not so interested in playing that game anymore. So it's been interesting this past month because Mm -hmm. the rhetoric keeps getting ratcheted up, ratcheted up. Um, It's hard to know where they go from here. And as Professor Kim, who you just heard, said, you know, when you keep bluffing and bluffing and bluffing, eventually you have to do something or you look pretty stupid. 
I want to ask you one more thing, uh, Mary Kay, about the new Chinese president, uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, A photo apparently has surfaced briefly today of the new first lady from the Tiananmen Square crisis of uh, 1989. I didn't see it. Apparently you did uh, for those few brief moments. What, What was that all about? Right. So this is very interesting that this happens this week when Xi Jinping is on his first international tour. He was in Russia, now he's in Africa. And his wife, Peng Liyuan, who's a famous singer and also a major general in the People's Liberation Army uh, because she's an artist soldier, they're traveling together and the Chinese media are all going gaga about, you know, how great her fashion sense is and how she's spreading China's soft power around the world, a la Michelle Obama, that she's you know, provides this softening presence next to Xi Jinping. So in the midst of all this, a photo emerges and the Associated Press ran the story. The photo was of Peng Liyuan in 1989 singing to the troops in Tiananmen Square who had just opened fire on pro-democracy demonstrators and civilians in the street. So why does that matter right now, do you think? Tiananmen always matters here. Um, the party has tried very hard since 1989 to try to erase that from public memory and to make sure that younger Chinese know as little about it as possible. So when you have the first lady who's supposed to be this ambassador of goodwill, spreading China's soft power around the world, showing up in this photo, reminding people, oh, actually, you know, this first couple, they're not actually the Obamas. It's a little sobering both within China, but also outside. Yeah, I, I, I got to ask you something that you mentioned a second ago. Peng Li Wen, the, the new first lady of China, she's got the status of artist soldier. What does that even mean? She Well, she actually has the ranking of major general in the People's Liberation Army. And she, her, her ranking is because she is an artist soldier. So within the army, uh, there are the actual fighting troops, but there are also theater troops that entertain the soldiers. So So, she was on the entertainment side. So if Lady Gaga was Chinese, she'd be like a major general? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Thank you, as always. Thanks, Marco. The rising tensions over North Korea are being closely monitored by the United Nations Security Council. But the council has other hotspots to worry about, too, like the Democratic Republic of Congo. This week, the Security Council took an unprecedented step with regards to the conflict there. It approved the creation of a U.N. combat brigade with the authority to carry out offensive operations against armed rebel groups in eastern Congo. In other words, U.N. troops will be able to act proactively to neutralize and disarm rebels. This new offensive brigade will be part of the existing 20,000-strong U.N. force in Congo, known by the acronym MONUSCO. Severine Otisser teaches African studies at Columbia University's Barnard College. She's conducted extensive research on peace-building interventions in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Dr. Otisser, what does this resolution allow U.N. peacekeeping forces to do exactly? How unprecedented is this? Well, it's unprecedented because it's the first time in, I would say, 50 years that the peacekeeping mission is allowed to go search and destroy armed groups, while usually peacekeeping forces are allowed to fire only when they have been fired upon. So I I gather you feel this was pretty unexpected. Why do you think the Security Council decided to make this move now and why in Congo? 
in Congo, because the Congolese conflict is one of the deadliest conflicts since World War II, and we have had a civil and international war in Congo for close to 20 years now, with various periods of escalation and de-escalation of violence. Last year was a period of escalation of violence, and the United Nations peacekeeping mission was tasked with protecting the Congolese population, but it was completely unable to do so. So people at the UN and at the Security Council were looking for new ways to approach this problem. And then two things have happened last month, which I think triggered the new resolution. Uh, The first one was that a regional peace agreement was signed in Addis Ababa on February 24. So there was renewed hope at that time that peace might finally be established in Congo. And still in February, the Secretary General submitted a report on the United Peacekeeping Mission in Congo. And in this report, he recommended the creation of this intervention brigade. So with UN peacekeepers able now to make preemptive strikes there, how do you think this is actually going to translate in terms of bringing some kind of peace or at least stopping the violence in Congo? I can see the potential for positive and negative impacts. So if uh, the new brigade does its job well, we can see an eventual decrease in the number of armed groups, an eventual decrease in the intensity, the severity, and the number of human rights violations on the population. Many of us who work on Congo see a huge potential for negative unintended consequences. Like what? Every time you have additional military operations in Congo, it results in increased human rights violations, increased massacres, increased suffering for the Congolese civilian populations. And the other thing for me is that the UN peacekeeping mission, it was already viewed as a party to the conflict, but having this intervention brigade will just solidify this perception as MONUSCO being fully on the side of the Congolese government. It might also decrease the mission's capacity to protect the population because the peacekeepers now will be increasingly targeted by the different armed groups who view them as an enemy. And the last thing also is that this intervention brigade is allowed to conduct operation in conjunction with the Congolese army. But we know that the Congolese army is among the worst perpetrator of human rights violation in the Congo. Severine Otisser teaches African studies at Barnard College at Columbia University in New York. Thanks very much for telling us about this. Thank you so much. One of the groups that's wreaked havoc in Congo is the Lord's Resistance Army. Originally based in Uganda, the LRA is a group of thugs that rape, pillage, and maim. Until last year, the LRA was one of those stories news programs struggled with, how to explain it to people here without having it sound like something violent and unspeakable that was happening somewhere out there. Then came Coney 2012. The film went viral, and millions of people started to care about capturing Joseph Coney, the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army. A year later, there's a new attempt to keep people caring in the form of comics. The World's Carol Hills reports. There's nothing funny about Joseph Coney and the Lord's Resistance Army, and I know that comics journalism isn't about being funny. But I still had to ask war correspondent David Axe why he chose graphic journalism as a way to talk about the LRA. He answered in a where-have-you-been kind of way. Why not comics? People who work in television don't ask why. They would uh, treat a subject in TV. Uh, People who write print books don't ask why use print. Truth is, um, folks have been doing nonfiction comic books for decades. David Axe has been doing it for about a decade. His earlier graphic journalism efforts reflect his war junkie predilection with titles like War Fix and War is Boring. 
Axe's latest is Army of God, Joseph Kony's War in Central Africa. He wrote it after spending several months in Congo in 2010, finding out everything he could about the Lord's Resistance Army. Axe interviewed UN peacekeepers, ambassadors, aid workers, relatives of those killed by the LRA, and most movingly, survivors of Joseph Kony's brutality. They included a 13-year-old girl named Patricia, who'd been forced to, quote, marry an LRA rebel soldier. She was raped and beaten repeatedly, and after refusing to kill a villager, she was denied food. It was that interview that prompted Axe to use the graphic novel form to tell the story of the LRA, because the medium both shows and tells. It's a story where the facts matter and the detail matters. So I get to use my words to convey some of those facts, but I get to bury that within a a visual story that can capture the tone and atmosphere and the darkness and light of the place. Axe tells the story in a series of vignettes involving real-life characters, everyone from Joseph Kony, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, a Congolese teacher who had his entire classroom of boys forcibly conscripted by the LRA, and Patricia. David Axe says depicting the violence committed by the Lord's Resistance Army was difficult. He relied on illustrator Tim Hamilton, who Axe says knew just where to draw the line. We didn't want to go too far. It's not that we are afraid of the truth of the violence on the ground in a place like Congo. There is a a fine but fuzzy line between reporting a story like this and being pornographers, and we are not pornographers. To avoid that, all the really horrible stuff, the killings, the mutilations, the rape, that's all in the script written by David Axe. And the corresponding visuals by artist Tim Hamilton modulate from naturalistic to more impressionistic when it comes to the actual violence. You see an LRA soldier heading into a tent to rape 13-year-old Patricia, but you don't see the actual rape. You see word balloons outside of the tent, making it clear that Patricia is sobbing and pleading with the soldier to stop. Axe says of the violence depicted in Army of God, We don't celebrate it. We want it to be there, but we want to be sensitive to our our own discomfort with the violence and to our audience. That violence is still being perpetrated. Joseph Coney remains at large. And David Axe wants you to know that. For The World, I'm Carol Hills. You can see the chapter from Army of God about 13-year-old Patricia at theworld.org. Still to come on the program, the other presidential election that's going to be called by a Supreme Court. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The $13 billion rescue package for Cyprus prevented an immediate financial meltdown in Europe, but it wasn't the end of the euro crisis. The economies of many countries are still in the dumps, and to make matters worse, many Europeans are losing faith in their leaders. In Spain, that's not just because of the economy, though. A corruption scandal is rocking the highest levels of the Spanish government, and there are hundreds of ongoing investigations at the local level, too. That's where experts say faith in the system has sunk the lowest. The world's Jerry Haddon has this story from his own neighborhood in Barcelona. This is not a tale of corruption or cronyism. It's about the perception of it. 
And it starts with this, an early morning traffic jam, snaking miles up a mountain road above the city, right past where I live, actually. For thousands of commuters, myself included, this road is pretty much the only way into town. The bottleneck started about a month ago, after the city decided to block off a smaller road that shoots off this one. No explanation. The newly blocked road is a shortcut to the highway for thousands. It's windy and cobblestoned, with a handful of old mansions behind high walls on either side. Unwitting drivers now turn up the road, only to have to turn around. This is Eduardo Rovida, a commuter. After pulling a complicated Yui, he shakes his head and comments on how weird this is. It's lamentable, he says, just like everything City Hall does. I don't know why they did this. Rubida didn't know because the city didn't say. And absent an explanation, people quickly fell back on an age-old, if flawed, source of information. The rumor mill. Karma Sikar has heard them all. She's the principal of the preschool at the bottom of the closed road. Sitting in her office, she says the call started coming in the very day the street was blocked off. Parents said, did we ask for this? We said no. Was it the elementary school next door? No, not them either. And so people concluded that someone important must live on the street. Someone with connections, an enchufado in Spanish. This person picked up his or her phone and had the road converted to pedestrian only just because. In other words, classic cronyism. The rumor gathered strength. The son of the country's top banker lives there, one parent told me. No, it's the owner of a huge chicken broth empire, said another. At a recent PTA meeting, parents didn't discount the theory, but they added others to the mix. It was the cheapest way to make the school zone safe for kids. The city is trying to force people to use an expensive toll road nearby. The lack of response from the city, the subsequent rumors, and the strong suspicion that someone influential pulled strings, none of this surprises Manuel Villoria, the head of Transparency International Spain. He says traditionally in Spain, the best way to get what you wanted, even in your own neighborhood, was to know the right people. And that's often still true. If I had to summarize it, I would say that in Spain there is corruption in the local government. We have a lot of cronyism. It was very entrenched in our political system. So we have now a lack of trust on politicians. To be fair, cronyism happens just about everywhere, from small-town America to, well, here. But what's different in Spain, what turns a tiny road closure into a big problem for City Hall, is the sheer number and scale of urban planning boondoggles over the past 20 years. The country now has three international airports where barely a plane has landed, countless housing developments that stand as empty as ghost towns, and high-speed trains to nowhere. You can even take a tour in Valencia called the Corrupt Tour. In the company's YouTube video, a guide shows tourists that city's $730 million Formula One racetrack that hosted just a few races before falling into disrepair. Spaniards, it seems, are sick of it. Which is why they've been making a lot of noise here about the little street closure. Urban planners finally did explain their decision three weeks later. No, they said, there was no cronyism. It was a school safety issue. But by then, no one really cared why the road was closed, and no one believed what city officials had to say anyway. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. Pakistan might be the last place you'd expect to find millions celebrating the love between two men. But take a rickshaw drive through the streets of the cultural capital, Lahore, and you'll discover Mado Lal Hussein's 
Darbar. It's a shrine where the Sufi mystic Lal Hussein lies buried next to his beloved, the Hindu male, Mado. Mavish Emud reports from Lahore. The drummers are standing outside the shrine of Madhu Lal Hussein. It's past closing time, but that doesn't stop them from playing on, beating their drums and themselves into a trance-like state. I am standing at the footsteps of a cement path that leads up to a marbled mausoleum and the graves of Madhu Lal Hussein, two men who share one name, Lal Hussein, the Muslim and the mystic, and Madhu, his upper caste, Brahmin beloved. Once upon a time, Lal said there was little point in calling them two separate names. They were never apart. They seemed to be one. A groundskeeper is sitting cross-legged on a platform next to the entrance. He sees me and asks me to come over. Let me give you an introduction, he says, and begins to tell me the tale of Lal Hussein and his beloved Madhu. Lal Muslim. Their love, as one might call it, it was the sort that our prophet, Muhammad, had for Allah. Their love was such that it brought a new color to their friendship. He was a beggar dervish, a beggar of Allah. The keeper continues to tell his tale of a man who gave up his worldly needs to reach ultimate union with his creator. A union, says the groundskeeper, that was reflected in his love for his madhu. The nights are long without my beloved, Lal Hussein once said. His kafis or poetry is recited and sung by musicians and laymen alike, and much of it is inspired by his love for Madhu, say scholars. A modern listener, used to categorizing desire into gay, straight, bi, might call these two men homosexual, but the groundskeeper never uses these labels. It's as if their sexuality is secondary and aside almost to the core of their being in the world. I think the way we understand homosexual identity today is without taking into account that it's a modern construct. Demia Zaman is an assistant professor of Islamic history at the University of San Francisco. She says today's labels don't make any sense. You have to put the relationship of these two men in the context of 16th century Lahore, a place far more open to a fluid notion of sexuality than we might otherwise think. You can't look at something that already existed and had a shrine devoted to it and say, but wasn't it unacceptable? Clearly it was acceptable. Then the question goes to, well, why was it acceptable? Don't religions condemn homosexual acts? But religions are not just their scriptures. Religions operate through people. And religions also operate within lived practices. And a number of societies do, to a greater or lesser extent, accept same-sex desire. Back at the shrine, the groundskeeper has finished. He asks me if I would like to meet two worshippers who are on their way out, a couple from the area who come, like many others, to say a few prayers. The wife nods when I ask her if she wants to say a final word. He worshipped Allah so much that we want to come close to Him and through Him come close to God. For the world, I'm Mavish Ahmed in Lahore. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, how would you like to try a diplomatic hangover? One and a half ounce of Russian vodka. It's got one and a quarter ounce of lemon grapefruit cordial. That's the mixer. And then sort of on top, you can put on some French rosé and some Tusker beer. We'll tell you the story behind the drink ahead on The World. 
WERI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Life has never been pleasant for the prisoners held by the U.S. and Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, but lately things have gotten especially bad. I'm talking specifically about the inmates in Camp 6. These are the low-risk cooperative detainees held in a communal camp. Last month, they began a hunger strike, apparently to protest aggressive searches of their Qurans. Guards at Guantanamo deny the holy books were mishandled. As of today, 37 of the 166 detainees have been classified by the prisoner, by the prison as hunger strikers. Lawyers for the detainees claim there are even more. But both sides agree the root of the prisoner's frustration is the uncertainty about whether their detention will ever end. Carol Rosenberg with the Miami Herald has been reporting on the naval base at Guantanamo since the 90s, well before it became a prison camp for top terrorism suspects. She was one of only two reporters at the base last week when news of the hunger strike broke and was able to witness it firsthand. I went and watched one by one as the communal blocks refused to cooperate and let the food carts come in. It was actually really the first proof to me how widespread this hunger strike was. You know, they live in these communal blocks and they have to close the gate so that the guards can open the gate on the other side and push in lunch. And one by one, they refused it. And and you can watch the guards throwing lunch out about 10 days ago on a video we have up on the website. They every day tell us that they push these carts into the communal prison, offer them lunch. Every day, all but one block where there's elderly, infirm detainees, that's the only block that accepts the food. And then the guards go about throwing the food out. So we got to actually see the hunger strike in action. More and more of the detainees are now being held in a maximum security, single cell, kind of solitary arrangement. They can recreate together. They get moved by guards into a recreation yard. But they're living alone in cells, which was considered the punishment blocks in the past, well, increasingly, the the prisoners are going in there, and they wouldn't let me see what's going on in there. So you're saying that this communal camp, Camp 6, the detainees in that camp who are striking are now essentially in, in solitary and in single cells? What I'm saying is that the military has been systematically draining the people from the communal camp where it's medium confinement into the maximum security camp where it's single-cell confinement. Mm. It used to be that Camp 6 was where the overwhelming majority of the 166 detainees lived, and it was the showcase. Uh, back in in August, I went for um, Ramadan, and frankly, it was as close to detente as you could, you could imagine. Everybody stuck to their own side and got along. During Ramadan, I went over to the maximum security prison, and you could hear a captive locked inside his cell berating a guard. That was the undesirable camp. Well, the undesirable camp is filling up, and the communal camp is being drained. I found very interesting in your uh, article in the Miami Herald recently about this hunger strike, um, after speaking with the prison librarian, the the kinds of books and movies that are kind of going out to to the inmates and, and who's watching them at this point. Over at the library, 
you learn a lot by what's going in and out of the prison. You learn a lot by whether people are reading books, um, whether they're asking for movies. And what the librarian told me as a sign that there's really something wrong going on is the requests have just stopped. Carol, as we said earlier, you were uh, one of two reporters there when the strike broke uh, last week. Why do you think attention on Guantanamo has diminished? Is it just fatigue with what the place symbolizes? Would people rather not know about it? It's been going on for 12 years. The president said he'd close it. It's a stalemate. And what we have in the form of the hunger strike is also a stalemate. I think, you know, sometimes people can't see the solution, so they don't want to hear about the problem. Why does the Miami Herald, your paper, uh, keep an interest on this? It can't just be because Guantanamo is 500 miles away. Well, we do take an interest in Cuba. We did make the commitment to go down there at the very beginning because we saw this as the piece of the war on terror that was playing out in our very backyard. And having invested so much time and so much commitment to it, it's hard to imagine stopping right now. Somebody needs to continue reporting it. It's a very important aspect of the war on terror. We've left Iraq. We're leaving Afghanistan. And there still are 166 captives at Guantanamo Bay. The story hasn't ended just because people would prefer not to hear about it. Carol Rosenberg with the Miami Herald. Good to talk with you. Thanks. Thank you. You can find that video Carol mentioned along with an extended version of our interview at theworld.org. CIA Chief John Brennan got quite a grilling during his confirmation hearings over his role in the spy agency's enhanced interrogation program. Critics say the program used methods that amounted to torture. Now Brennan must decide whether to promote another CIA veteran who allegedly got her hands dirty in that line of work. In fact, she helped make the decision to destroy videotapes of interrogations at her old station, a so-called black site in Thailand. Now she's acting head of clandestine operations at the CIA, the first woman to fill that role, and a candidate for filling the post permanently. This official is undercover and can't be named, but current and former officials confirm her background in a Washington Post article published this week. Greg Miller, who co-wrote the story, told me more about her. She is in her mid-50s and has a long and fairly distinguished career with the agency. I mean, she's part of a generation of women who arrived at the sort of the tail end of the Cold War and pushed past a lot of the, the gender barriers that were in place at the CIA. She mastered multiple languages, served overseas tours in places including Moscow. She was the chief of station for the CIA in London, which isn't a risky job, but it's a very high-profile job. Uh, and she also ran the CIA's station in New York, which is, a, which is a big operation for the agency. So she has lots of experience and lots of backing within the CIA, which complicates things for the director now on, on the decision whether to keep her there. Right. And is it certain, incontrovertible, that she indeed was involved in torture sessions herself? Well, I've had multiple officials say, and the CIA does not dispute, that she was in the chain of command on the interrogation program. She was a senior officer in the counterterrorism center after the 9-11 attacks. And in his book, her former boss, Jose Rodriguez, describes her as being put in charge of one of the black sites, which is where prisoners were interrogated and subjected to these methods, including 
waterboarding. So if she ran a black site and she was in, in a senior position in the CTC, you know, there aren't a lot of people who were in more direct contact or connection to the interrogation program than this woman. CTC being Counterterrorism Center. Um, That's right. And these controversial videos, what, what do they purport to show and what did she want to do with them? Well, we've never seen them, obviously. They were destroyed before anybody got to take a look at them. But according to records and, and other information that have come out about them, they they were videotapes of interrogation sessions. And at least a dozen of them, there are over 90 of them, and at least a dozen depicted harsh interrogations, probably including the use of waterboarding. Is it clear to you what her role was in destroying the videos? Yeah, she has a direct role. I mean, her her boss, Jose Rodriguez, who ran the counterterrorism center and the clandestine service, he and she spent several years seeking permission from their bosses to destroy those tapes as soon as it became clear to them that these were going to be a problem someday. They, they never got that permission mm. to destroy those tapes. But one day in 2005, an order went out anyway, and it had just two names on it, Jose Rodriguez and his chief of staff, who is the woman who is now in charge of the clandestine service. So ultimately, her name is on the order to destroy those tapes, which was one of the most sort of fateful and controversial decisions and actions in the post 9-11 period for the CIA. So why does this woman, as uh, head of CIA clandestine services, present a dilemma for the new director, uh, John Brennan, at the CIA? Well, it's a dilemma on multiple levels. So you've got a, a senior officer, experienced officer in this job, who many people at the agency think is deserving of getting it on a permanent basis. The first time a woman has been put in this position, it would be hard for any director to therefore pull the first woman out of that job after only a few weeks or maybe a few months. But on the other hand, you know, this is an agency that is desperate to put this part of its history behind it and to get beyond it. Greg Miller of The Washington Post, thank you. Thank you. Like many college students on spring break in recent weeks, we're heading south for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for the name of the peninsula that's home to that notorious spring break destination, Cancun. This is also the place to go to see major Maya archaeological sites like Chichen Itza or Tulum. The Maya civilization that dominated this region went into decline centuries ago, but Mayan people still live there. Today, this peninsula is mostly covered by three modern Mexican states, Campeche, Quintana Roo, and, you guessed it, Yucatan. Now, the Yucatan Peninsula is a bit different from the rest of Mexico. For example, while soccer is like a religion for most Mexicans, for many in the Yucatan's Mayan community, baseball is the sport of choice. And some Mexican Mayas have brought that passion with them to California. There's even a mostly Maya baseball league there. And if you head to one of their games, you'll hear not just Spanish, but the Maya language as well. The world's Monica Campbell has a story in collaboration with New America Media. Here's a story about baseball and a healthy amount of ethnic pride. It's still preseason at a small ballpark in San Francisco, but it's a clear, warm Sunday, so friends and family are showing up. Typical American scene until you listen a bit closer. That's Lucy Gongora. She's talking about the tamales she sells here in her native Maya language. Most everyone here speaks it, except me. So she switches to Spanish to help me out. She says nearly everyone here is from the Mexican state of Yucatan, many from the same towns. It's a heavily indigenous place. Gongora left her daughters behind to work here. 
She was smuggled over the Arizona border in the trunk of a car. So the Sunday games take her home a bit. Same goes for the players. Un domingo sin baseball no es un domingo. It's not a Sunday without baseball, says one of this team's strongest players, Alberto Gomez. Back home, Gomez went pro for a time, and he remembers facing some heavy hitters. But Gomez is 42 now and happy to be part of Club Yucatan. There are about a dozen Yucatec Maya teams like this in California and growing as more Maya immigrants arrive. When I asked Gomez how to say baseball in Maya, one of his teammates, Gregorio Santina, chimes in. Bacha bola. Bacha bola. Ah. Me encanta. Santina <laughs> and Gomez speak Maya together. It keeps them connected to home. Gomez came to San Francisco for work more than a decade ago. He's a busboy in an Italian restaurant. Carlos, Jorge, Jose, Jairo, Alberto. So nearly everyone on the team is from the Yucatan. But the camaraderie, and maybe the food, draws in a few non-Mayans, including Levi Austin Sheets. Levi Austin Sheets, I'm from Albany, California. He's a bartender who used to play baseball. One of his co-workers, who's a player here, invited him to try out. It's Austin's first day. It seems like a a loving group of family. I love it. We've got tamales in the stands. Maybe I'll earn a couple of those today. (laughs) The players call him El Guero. It's Mexican slang. You know, a white guy who speaks Spanish. (laughs) I'm one above a gringo. (laughs) He's also like others here, working long hours in catering or in restaurants. The team's manager, Gaspar Chi, says his players usually show up bleary-eyed. It's the six-day work weeks, he says, double shifts ending at 3 a.m. There's dedication, but also caution. Chi tells his players it's not worth getting injured just to win a game. The money you send home is too important. And it's a community that sticks together. In Mexico, prejudice against the Mayan population can run deep because of their darker skin, different languages. Alberto Perez runs a San Francisco nonprofit that serves the Maya community. People picked on us because they can hear our accents. They can, you know, see that we are a little shorter than they are. They can see that we look a little different. Perez's parents are Maya from the Yucatan, but he grew up in Mexico City and hid his indigenous roots. He says in California, he feels freer. I think in here it's more okay to say, I'm Mayan, I'm indigena. I, I, I think people feel more comfortable coming out as indigenous as compared to Mexico. It's, it's interesting because we have to come all the way here in this country that it's not perfect, but at least in terms of being able to identify ourselves as indigenous has been a little bit easier. everybody. Back at the field, manager Gaspar Chi looks at his roster. A few good players haven't shown up for spring training. He says that a bunch of players went home to visit their families about a year ago for Christmas, but they haven't come back. She says it's harder to cross the border these days. He's waiting to see if his players turn up later this spring. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell, San Francisco. We have pictures of the Club Yucatan Mayan baseball team, plus a link to a video from our partners at New America Media. That's all at theworld.org. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. First, an excruciatingly close vote for the presidency polarizes the country. For weeks, powerful lawyers bicker over the validity of ballots while the nation waits anxiously. Then, for the first time in the country's history, the Supreme Court is called to rule on the potentially explosive result. It's not Bush v. Gore in 2000. It's the East African nation of Kenya today. Earlier this month, Uhuru Kenyatta, the son of Kenya's first president, was declared the winner by a razor-thin margin. But his opponent, Prime Minister Raila Odinga, charges the election commission bungled the vote. Kenya's highest court is due to announce its ruling tomorrow. Larry Madoo is news anchor in Nairobi at Kenya's NTV. Like most Kenyans, Larry, I suspect you watched the Supreme Court arguments this morning. What is this moment like? Well, it's a big moment for the country, really. This is setting precedent in a lot of ways. This is the first major case the Supreme Court is setting in place. Everybody's on standby across the country waiting to see what that ruling, that historic ruling, will be tomorrow. Now, apparently the defense cited many previous cases this morning when it urged the court not to nullify the results, including one case uh, we Americans are very familiar with, Bush v. Gore from 2000. That did come up in the defense, especially for the president-elect Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy-elect. So far, they say the evidence has just not surfaced to be able to invalidate the entire our process. So what options does the court have right now? Well, the court has to consider all the submissions that have been made Some people say that the fact that the Odinga side was able to raise a certain degree of reasonable doubt means that the Supreme Court could throw it out. But a lot more people saying the fact that we just didn't have enough evidence means that Uhuru Kenyatta's election will be upheld. Mm. Now, this is Kenya's newly revamped Supreme Court. Will Kenyans respect the ruling of the court, whatever it is? The politicians at least have made very public statements saying that we respect the Supreme Court and uh, Uhuru Kenyatta specifically saying, if I need to go back and make another pitch to Kenyans to be elected, I am ready to do that. And Raila Odinga has also publicly said he respects what will come out of the Supreme Court. About the rest of Kenyans, it remains to be seen how well they will take this because we've never seen a case as big as this. Now, the other thing about uh, Kenya's newly revamped Supreme Court is that it's uh, presided over by Chief Justice Willie Mutunga. And it's often pointed out that he has an iPad at the bench where many judges might place a gavel. Is he kind of the new face of Kenyan justice? And what does that say about this case? In many ways, he is. I think he should get a big tab from Apple for the free advertising he's given them. <laughs> and he did crack jokes in between a case as important as this and just trying to lighten the mood. So in a way, he is the face of the new judiciary that is changing and continues to change. Well, even if the Supreme Court upholds Uhuru Kenyatta's victory, he has other issues hanging over him. The International Criminal Court in The Hague has charged Mr. Kenyatta with crimes against humanity, accusing him of bankrolling death squads to attack his opponents after the 2007 election. What would it mean for Kenya to have a head of state that's facing charges at the ICC? Uhuru Kenyatta has said at the presidential debate, the first we, we had in the country's history, that he is perfectly capable of running the country and clearing his name at the International Criminal Court at The Hague. In fact, it became a running joke when Prime Minister Raila Odinga said at that debate that you cannot run a country via Skype. And at least a few days later, there's an opportunity to respond to some of those charges at the ICC. And they did do that through Skype. Mm. Larry Madowo, news anchor in Nairobi at Kenya's NTV. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
It's Friday, so you might be getting ready for happy hour. It started a bit early here at The World. No, I have not been drinking during the show. But at the U.N., some diplomats have been accused of drinking on the job. Colm Lynch is U.N. correspondent for The Washington Post and writes a blog for foreign policy. He wrote about a recent diplomatic tussle over drinking at the U.N., and in return, he's ended up with a drink being created for him. The drink is called the Diplomatic Hangover. Colm, I want to be sure to get the recipe from you, but tell me first how you ended up with your own drink, this Diplomatic Hangover. Uh, this is a pretty big event in my career. Um, <laughs> I've won a couple of awards, but I don't think anything comes close to this. But in any event, there was a, a story that I wrote a couple of weeks ago about a complaint by the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. who had been sort of scolding other U.N. diplomats for excessive drinking in the sort of the heat of negotiations over the U.N. budget. It sort of sparked a kind of uh, a strong reaction from the membership, particularly from the Africa group who thought that that the remark about, you know, excess drinking was directed at them. And then they sort of like stopped the negotiations, having negotiations at nighttime over Mm. the weekend. They said, if you want to play this game, then we'll play hardball. So there was a program in Canada by the CBC on the culture of drinking, and they have their own in-house, you know, mixologist and Mm. He sort of saw the pieces and and they decided to come up with a couple of drinks. One of them is called the Diplomatic Hangover. And and there's another one for teetotalers, which is called Diplomatic Community, which has no (laughs) alcoholic beverages in it. So who was telling tales out of school then uh, about drinking? It was Ambassador Joseph Torsella, who is the, the U.S. Ambassador for Management and Reform. He was very frustrated, I think, in negotiations over the budget. The U.S. has been trying to sort of scale back costs on a number of issues. What happens in these negotiations is they tend to go very, very late into the night. The Africa group, which you know represents all the African countries, they said, okay, we're going to stop negotiations at 6 o'clock. We're going to do it all in the room. We're not going to have any nighttime negotiations. You know, over the last couple of days, they actually have achieved some of their goals in the negotiations. They cut back a little bit of money on travel costs at the U.N. So, you know, it wasn't a total wash. Mm. Shouldn't be a total loss because one of the results was this uh, diplomatic hangover drink. So uh, lay it on us. So what's in it? Okay, it's got uh, one and a half ounce of Russian vodka. It's got one and a quarter ounce of lemon grapefruit cordial. That's the mixer. And then sort of on top, you can put on some French rosé and some Kenyan Tusker beer. You know, what's kind of interesting is the Canadians were uh, mentioned in the story as having brought sort of Canadian whiskey to some of these events in the past. And I I was surprised that a Canadian bartender left out the uh, Canadian whiskey. I'm getting bed spins just thinking about it. Have you ever tasted one of these? Uh, I I haven't tasted one yet. The UN's been going through a renovation. So the UN bar has been closed for the last two or three years. And it's going to be reopening. So I'm going to start working on trying to convince, you know, the bartenders at the bar to start carrying this drink. Because I think think when I leave and I'm gone, this will be about the only thing anybody remembers about me. (laughs) Your your, your legacy. (laughs) Uh, I think it'll be more than that. Colm Lynch, UN correspondent for The Washington Post. You can read his recipe recipe for the diplomatic hangover at his blog. We've got a link at theworld.org. Colm, great to speak with you. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having me, Mark. Take care. And remember, please, 
drink responsibly. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.